Uh, I simply want to begin this morning uh, by just generally acknowledging how, how tragic this, this past week has been. We, of course, have an ongoing war in Ukraine. We had that shooting in Buffalo several weeks ago. We received that terrible report from the Southern Baptist Convention about abuse. I'm sure some of you saw it. And then, of course, 21 people in Uvalde, Texas are dead, 19 of them 10-year-olds. Families are, of course, absolutely heartbroken. Communities are shattered there. Uh, and, of course, political opinions are, are unabated, which is, of course, not new. And I have to admit to you all, this is my first experience seeing something like this as a father, and um, it's really hard news for families. This is hard news for people. Now, I'd also like to begin by simply saying it is my habit in times of heartbreak or confusion or disorder to even still, as a preacher, turn to the Scriptures. That is, I do not believe that turning to the Scriptures is ever an apolitical act or a cop-out or a waste of our time. Because I believe it is the same God who is the source of the Scriptures and also the one who stands over all of history. In other words, I believe that every moment and time is illuminated by His Word because all of it is His forever. And in fact, in the Gospel reading today, we see that it is shockingly appropriate for our current moment. Remarkably so. It is John chapter 17, which, as you might know, is by and large considered the locus classicus on the topic of Christian unity. It establishes not only the way we, the church, are called together to be a unified people of God, but also the way in which the very hope of the gospel is grounded in the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. In other words, unity is not some... Uh, Unity is not an aspiration merely. It is also the mechanism of our salvation. We, in baptism, are made one with Jesus Christ and therefore accepted into his embrace as his son. You see how that works. Unity is not just something we're commanded to do. It is given to us, and it is a great gift as a component of our salvation. Listen again. I'll remind you of what Jesus says in John chapter 17. He prays, Father, I ask that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And he continues, I have given them your glory so that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Again, by merit of being made one with Jesus Christ, we are all given God's own righteousness, and thereby all of us together should all share a certain mind, a certain character, a certain aroma as we receive this profound gift of God's own righteousness. You can even hear it in the way that St. Paul takes up the theme of unity between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Christ has abolished the ordinances of Jewish ritual in order that he might create in himself one new humanity, reconciling both groups to God and one body through the cross. See, ethnicity here as a source of identity is undone in the gospel. Ethnicity, of course, is a creaturely good that remains for all of us. Jesus, I'll remind you, will only ever be a Jewish man. Ethnicity is good. However, in him, in Jesus Christ's own flesh, ethnic division of any sort as a means of positioning ourselves over and against one another is terminated 
in the body of Jesus Christ. Rather, we are now marked by his blood forever and named brothers and sisters of God. What a gift. What a gift. And yet there is also a command here, be ready. I think this unity also comes as a kind of mortifying work. We could even envision it as a sort of reduction. For instance, in Isaiah 34, when Israel comes under the day of God's vengeance, as it calls it, his correction, he distills her into almost nothing. And then he declares, Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one shall be missing, for his mouth has commanded and his spirit has gathered them to himself. In other words, our unity, friends, often emerges when the dross of our commitments is winnowed away, corrected, and we finally recognize one another as brothers and sisters that we actually are. God is doing this, I believe, even now. Now, this unity also takes up our future. It directs our efforts and all of our common life as we move closer to that final day of perfect union and harmony with God the Father through the Son. It is like in Nehemiah when the freed Israelites have come back from exile in the Babylonian territories and they are commanded to begin rebuilding the walls. That is their first priority, to rebuild the walls. And I think these walls perhaps are not mean, meant to be primarily uh, a structure of demarcation and defense, Their walls built up perhaps as a vessel to gather up all of the wandering people of God into one nation in one place with one fate as if to say here in this place is collected the people of God where God has done something salvific to them. They are his and they are together as one. It's just like what we see in the Ark of Noah when all of humanity again gathered into a single household, a single container or vessel, their futures bound together under God's own will, sharing each other's grief and one another's problems. You see, friends, we do not always get to choose who our companions are for this journey. And our unity requires, as a great gift, that we bear one another's burdens. And even in that, maybe because of that, God is taking us somewhere. And so again, when we see Jesus pray in John chapter 17, at the end of his protracted teaching of the disciples about what their lives should all look like when he has left them four whole chapters of it, we discover in this prayer that unity is of primary, primary concern to him. You see, unity, according to Jesus, is not some tepid plea for a common cause. It is also not a bland sense of nostalgia for a shared past experience. It is something central to the very heart of God. I invite you to listen again to the power of these biblical descriptions. The language that we see is the union shared between the Almighty God and the co-eternal Son. The union that he talks about is being clothed in God's uniform righteousness. The union that we see is about our future lives being wrought together under God's own guidance, maybe like some metal worker pounding steels into a workable union for his own purpose. You see, unity, friends, is part of what it means to be the people of God, and it is something that grounds all of our hope that we are united to the Father through the Son under the power of the Holy Spirit all together as one people. Now, what might that mean for us on a day like today? Well, I think Jesus suggests a few things. The first of them is most obvious. 
He says three times in our reading that the outward shape of this union we share should, in fact, be love. It should be love. Listen again to what he prays. I pray that they all may be one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Another way of saying this, perhaps, is that our union with one another, our ability to listen, to be compassionate, to work together, to seek out the greater good, to live peaceably, to control our language, all of that depends on whether or not we believe that God has truly loved us in Jesus Christ, proved to us on the cross. You see, if you and I abide in God's love, if we receive it, hold fast to it, trust in it, then we have nothing to lose. Nothing can be taken away from you if you receive the love of God. You see, friends, it is free. There is no paying for it. There is no earning it. There is no merit required, only that you make your home in God's everlasting love that you believe in it and let it guide all of your being. And the call for those of us who are invited into this love, into this union with God the Father through the Son, I think is less of a commandment in many ways and more of a propulsive force. Not unlike you see at the beginning of Acts, you might remember. When the early Christians all gathered in Jerusalem, they shared all things, they had all things in common. Chapter 4 even goes as far to say that there was not a needy person among them. And so people were continually added day by day to the people of God. And so I simply ask us on a week such as this, a week that has been so immensely challenging, how can we allow this picture of self-offering, Trinitarian love, inform our culture as a church, as a people of God? That is, what would it look like for us to gaze into the generous heart of God the Father who gives up his own son for the sake of loving us? What would it look like for us to turn to God the Son See the way he willingly lays down his own divinity for the sake of going and dying on a cross. You see, we Christians, friends, we have this immense privilege because of this free gift of union with God the Father. We have this privilege of living out this propulsive freedom and affection for one another. Proving to the world that God is who he says he is in Jesus Christ. Showing him the very heart of God's character to the world, living out lives of affection and self-sacrifice and peace and care, charity and generosity. All, again, I'll remind you, because of that objective union that we have in Christ Jesus, detailed so intensely in all of Paul's letters. That union is ours. How will we share it? And in this, dare I say, heated moment I might gently suggest a couple of things. First, first that you and I, first and foremost, are not defined by our political identity. You realize that, right? You may be part of a political party, but you are, not, you are not united to them as brothers and sisters. The people that are sitting to your right and left and front and behind you, those people you are united to as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You see, we are united to Christ. We are not united to a political party. And therefore, I would make further suggestions that we as Christians should live in particular ways. I'll give two gentle suggestions. 
First, I would encourage all of you as Christians to think about how our gospel passage encourages us to live for the sake of others. Proving God's love by our own love for one another and for the world. I would encourage you, take on the most extravagantly other-oriented spirit that you possibly can. Be the most dialogue-ready, open-hearted Christian that you could ever be. Let it live in your language and in your actions and even in your opinions. Additionally, I'd encourage you to think on the way that the Revelation passage that we just heard read describes something that is truly otherworldly, our coming to be with God the Father, something truly apocalyptic. It is a redemption and a restoration that no means of politicking could ever accomplish. It's not because our politicking is too bad, it's because we are in such deep need of repair. And so I would encourage you in your grief and in your anger and your righteous desire for political action, I'd encourage you to not place your ultimate hope at the feet of any political agenda. It will never, ever satisfy what you want and what this world needs. So all of us, place your hope in Jesus Christ. Seek the common good, politically or otherwise. But as you do that, cry out for the redemption and justice that can only come from God the Father. And to that end, I would ask us all to turn our eyes to the great feast day that we celebrated on Tuesday, which is the ascension of Jesus Christ. You see, the Feast of the the Ascension is the day where we celebrate how Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, is currently preparing a place for us at his table, and will one day execute absolute justice on earth. Fix your eyes on that event, friends. Because his ascent into heaven, his very absence, is even a proof for us that one day all of us who are within his grasp will be brought into intimate communion with our Heavenly Father and, in fact, one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.